once more. Ephesians chapter 6. The disciplines of applying God's armor. We're looking at this a third time. And our focus has been on verses 10 through 13 before we actually get to the armor proper beginning with the 14th verse of Ephesians chapter 6. Our Puritan Thomas Brooks writes, Beloved, our dearest Lord Christ, the scripture, your own hearts and Satan devices or Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here or happy thereafter. And that is a part of our emphasis, is to understand what this war is about. That it is a fierce war between good and evil, the glory of God, or our sinful desires, or Satan's attack on the church because of his hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is something that we must understand Theologically and clearly, that the armor of God is the very character and nature of Christ himself. And it comes in the area of day-to-day progressive sanctification, that the armor grows in strength as we mature in Christ-likeness. We also noted that spiritual warfare, uh, taken from the explanation of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, through 5, is the application of God's truth to every opposition. So Paul says, I'm I'm fighting the struggles that the Corinthian believers have in their mind. I'm fighting that struggle, not through carnal means, not through earthly threats, but the truth. The truth. So spiritual warfare is really a battle about the truth concerning God and Christ. But the message of spiritual warfare is not a fixation on the enemy or the adversary, it is to focus on our conquering king, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are wearing his victorious armor. And so we've been looking at the three disciplines from verses 10 through 13 for faithfully applying God's armor, and the first we noted was in verse 10. It was to depend on the power of Christ. And then we concluded the second discipline, and it is to discipline your life through progressive sanctification. And then today, our third is to determine to take up God's armor at all times. Determine to take up God's armor at all times. Verse 10, Ephesians 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, And having done all, to stand firm. Let's continue up to verse 20. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on 
the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So there's the dependency in verse 10. There's the discipline through progressive sanctification in verses 11 and 12. And then this determination. You see in verse 13, it says, Therefore, take up. You recall that the command in verse 10 of Ephesians 6 was, was in the passive action, which means that you to be strengthened. The strength does not come from you, but it comes from God. Verse 13, it is active. You are responsible for taking up the entire armor. That's the command here, to actively involve yourself in the process of taking up this armor. But there's also another vital implication involved with the act of taking up, and it is this. To take up in verse 13 stresses a sense of urgency. There's a sense of urgency. It's, it's picturing the final stages of a battle. You're in the final critical preparation stages before the battle begins. Take up the armor before the devil and the world and your own indwelling sins begins to unleash itself in attacking you. We stressed over the last few weeks the vital necessity of, of the embodiment of Ephesians itself, the entire letter. That failure to engage in the word of God, especially through the preaching of the word of God, leaves you deficient in putting on this armor. If there's not a following of the preaching of God's word, the meditating of the preaching of God's word and the application from Ephesians 1 up to where we are, the armor is deficient. We cannot overstress the importance of hearing the preaching of God's word, listening and responding because the fight is here and this, the adversary is bringing the fight right to your heart. And the reason why you need to take up the whole armor in verse 13, it says to withstand in the evil days. Now, once more, if you see this ability, this ability comes from God. It, it is not from us. It, uh, it, it, it communicates this sense of this perfect ability. So we don't have this perfect ability, but the perfect nature of this ability comes from God that you can withstand at all times without being defeated. Along with the Apostle Paul, two other New Testament authors, James and Peter, they use the same Greek word for withstand or to stand firm. And I think that the letter in uh, the epistle of Peter is a good reference because it sets the exhortation in standing firm within the believer's struggle. So he's telling them to stand firm. The hostility is great. The suffering is great. The anguish is great. But I know how you can stand firm. I think it's good for us to look at that uh, passage in, in 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. So please turn there with me with God's word in hand to 1 Peter chapter 5. The beginning of this letter begins with an exhortation uh, to the elders to shepherd the flock. 
uh, to do it eagerly, to do it willingly as God would have them. And then it encourages the younger to submit in verse 5 and be subject to elders. And then a very important quality of virtue that is necessary. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And it says, humble yourselves, verse 6, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It says, resist him. There it is. Resist him firm in your faith. And that is the stance that we're taking here in verse 14 of Ephesians 6. The stance has, has a position of resistance, which means you are not wavering, you are not shifting, you, you remain fixed because you are armed with the character of God who is also firm and he is a rock. So it says in 1 Peter 5, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. So you find here in this resistance it is not only to stand your ground, but it is also to oppose what is wrong, to oppose what is contrary to the truth. So whenever you're tempted in your struggles or tempted to sin, to stand firm is to resist the temptation, but you resist the temptation by the power of God and the Word of God. So if you have not been treasuring, storing the Word of God, you have nothing for the fight. When you go back to Ephesians 6, what is indispensable to the armor is understanding what the Scripture is teaching about the Christian life. Now, here's some opposing hostility toward the church, toward you as a believer. And this is what we all face. When you are resisting the adversary, you're also resisting those sinful thoughts that he may encourage in your own mind. So in Ephesians 4, for example, 17 and 18, even though you're no longer associated with the world, you still have the battle of the mind. And so you're opposing sinful thoughts. Not only about yourself, but sinful thoughts about God. It says in verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, so there's no illumination. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And then later in this text, verse 20, it says, But that is not the way you learn Christ. So clearly there's an issue that sinful thoughts oppose the knowledge of the Savior. So we, we just cannot go through our life with a ho-hum approach to spiritual things. There must be an engagement in, in the knowledge and the understanding of the very character and nature of God and then putting that into practice, the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the thoughts of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the glory of Christ. But then there's a battle against sinful 
desires. Walking according to the course of this world, chapter 2, there is fulfilling the desires of the flesh. It says in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So even in Christ, you're still fighting against those desires. It's a truth war. Did God really say it? And then if you're standing firm, you have to stand firm in the temptation to resist submission and obedience. Once again, in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, submitting to one another speaks of mutual submission in the appropriate relationships, which means every Christian is to practice submission in some form. Whether it be in marriage, you submit wives to your husband, husbands to the Lord as you serve. And if you're even not married, if you're single, there's still this submission to those in whom God has placed over you, and for the church, the church submits to its leaders. Submission encompasses all of life, then. And those who fail to submit uh, to those in whom God has placed an authority over them, you're given into those sinful thoughts. You're losing the fight. Your armor is compromised because you're not putting on Christ. Dear saints, we need Christ some of these glorious and marvelous imperatives, but in our sinfulness, it is hard to do. When we give into our sinful thoughts and sinful desires, submission becomes an enemy and not an ally. That's what we're fighting. But as Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and, and standing in Ephesians 6, it is to have a firm and fixed position. See, if you're wavering on these convictions, then you're not resting on the character of Christ. You're resting on your own character. You will not succeed. Your positioning, your posture must rest on the character of Christ. It must rest in your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, submitting to your own husbands as to the Lord Everyone submits as to the Lord. The children obeying your parents in the Lord. It is a ruling lordship of Christ, the glorious risen Christ that you rest your obedience on. If you rest it on anything else, you will not stand firm. You will not resist. But this comes with great success when you and I are putting on the armor of God. And I cannot stress once more, dear saints, is to take the entirety of God's Word, the Scripture, the truth, we can say specifically for this study in Ephesians, and applying the entire letter to your lives. In an act of worship, thanksgiving, appreciation, adoration, acknowledgement, and then in that acknowledgement in the first three chapters of Ephesians comes the obedience. Go back to Ephesians 6, verse 13. It says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Uh, so a, a, a sub-point to verse 13 is that applying God's armor prepares you 
for the evil day. And if it, pre- it prepares you for the evil day, then it prepares you for every day. That is the beauty of taking up this armor at all times. Because it prepares you. But then what is the evil day? Well, you know, in verse 16 of Ephesians 5, it says, Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Here it is in verse 16 of Ephesians 5. It has this plural aspect of more than one day. The evil day may be a day within days of extreme hostility. So we're always in a fight. There are always struggles. We always have battles. And according to the Greek text, if we translate it as it is in the Greek text, the evil day, then it is about a specific day or season of relentless attacks against the church corporately and individually because of the name and the glory of Christ and the gospel. So it could be a time of heightened spiritual attacks from the devil. And it is true from time to time, even in your personal life, you'll experience seasons of, of great success. Things are going well. All of a sudden, out of almost, it seems, nowhere, just extreme attacks from the adversary. And I know sometimes we, we shower from spiritual battles and spiritual warfare, but that's a dangerous thing to do. Because you are, if you are not aware that you are in a battle, you will be susceptible to defeat more often than, than victory. So we must be aware that times when you have seasons of great joy and, and success and fruit, and then the other times there's a tremendous struggle in your soul. And you look at your life, you, you know you have sins to mortify, but there's really nothing there that stands out as far as a sinful leading to that struggle. So the adversary could be intensifying his attacks. Because he's out for your destruction. He's out for your harm. He doesn't just want you to not love the Lord, not to pursue the Lord, which is true, but he wants to destroy every spiritual progress that he can and ultimately, if it were possible, to destroy your spiritual life. But whether it is a great day of intense attacks or the current battle against unholy oppositions, which be our sins, the world, and the devil... The point is you cannot fight without the armor, whether it is a light fight or a very heavy fight. You cannot. The armor must always remain on. And a part of that keeping the armor on is verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine of Ephesians 5, for that is the body, but be filled with the Spirit. Continually, as you, t- as you are strengthened, be strengthened, be filled. Be filled. Let him fill you. Submit to him. Surrender to him day by day, moment by moment. Do not go without his filling. Because when you do that, that is failure to appropriate or use the armor. When there's a lack of dependency on the spirit and the word, you are no longer appropriating the armor that God has given you in salvation. So they're saying it's the filling of the Holy Spirit along with the word of God, is is the habit of true spirituality, and that is a way you put the armor on. And if you're not relying on the Spirit's filling, you are not using the armor. Or when sin dominates your life, and when you're not growing spiritually, you are not using the armor. To put on the armor is to put on the character of your Savior and the Holy Spirit. His mission, right, was to glorify And it is to magnify Christ. Because even as he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment, it all has to do with the Messiah. It has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I want to, to look at a passage. I think Romans chapter 13 will, will help us truly understand that the armor is, is not anything uniquely different to sanctification, to robing ourselves practically with the character of the Savior. So turn with me, Romans chapter 13. And the letter to the Roman believers, it was written by the Apostle Paul, and in chapter 13, after the instruction to submit to and also to care for civil authorities, you submit to them, but also you support them financially so that they can continue to exercise their ministry of justice. Verse 8 of Romans 13 begins with this theme of the law of love in Christ. Oh, no one anything except to love one another or love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And then let's pick up with verse 11. And notice what it says here. Besides this, you know the time. This is critical, dear saints. We are aware of the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So verse 11 picks up this sense of urgency and the day of our final salvation, that is, the return of Christ. It is closer, truly, it is closer than when we first believed. Every day we live is a day, a moment, a season, closer to the return of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In verse 13, Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says, you know, which means this is something you knew in the past, and you know presently. So this is not some surprise information. This is something that they knew, and it is a settled truth. You know this. The unbelievers, they are not aware of the time. The believers are aware of the time. And so verse 12, the intensity heightens. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, for that reason, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So the day is approaching. The day is upon us. The day of the Lord is at hand. It is near. And since we live as believers anticipating the return of Christ, then we live in that light. So if light represents truth, light represents righteousness, Light represents God because God is light. In him there is no darkness. Darkness represents sin. It represents ignorance. It represents spiritual death. But as Ephesians 5 verse 8 says, But at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So there's illumination. There's understanding. There's no longer ignorance. So verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. Then what is the solution? Verse 14 of Romans chapter 13, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's how 
you fight this battle. It says you're supposed to cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. How do you do so? How do you walk properly in the daytime? The armor of God. What is the armor of God? It is the character of Christ. So if you are anticipating the return of Christ, then there is this balanced living, and there's the expression, the living, the response that is fitting for someone who is looking for the return of their glorious Savior. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So then putting on the armor, as we said before, is progressive sanctification. It is becoming more and more like your Savior. There's nothing special. There's no magical formula. There's no chanting. We don't have to stand up after service and say, I put on the armor in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is sanctification. It is pursuing Christ. It is knowing Christ. Christ dwelling richly. Romans says that you are a child of the day. And then the, the the command to put off is like removing this garment. You're removing this garment of, of, of sin, this practice and the habit of sinful living. You remove darkness like an old garment that you're no longer fit to wear. So sanctification and sinful living are not compatible. You can't have two garments on at the same time. But you put on the armor of light. So to wear the whole armor of God is for Christ to dwell in your heart richly. One of the prayers in uh, the prayer in chapter 3 of Ephesians was so that Christ may dwell in your hearts richly. What what does that do? That that produces an effective armor. It's sanctification. To put on Christ is to robe your obedience through his righteousness. William Gurnall wrote a classic treatment on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, uh, titled The Christian in Complete Armor. It's a massive book. It's powerful. But he said that it is holiness and righteousness the devil's spite or hatred is at. No gain comes to the devil's purse. No victory he counts got except he can make the Christian lose his holiness. He can allow a man to have anything or be anything rather than be truly, powerfully holy. It is not your riches and worldly enjoyments he grudges or resents so much as your holiness. Now, dear saints, Gurnall is not making a reference to positional sanctification of holiness. We are sanctified or set apart by God positionally. He places us as a sovereign act of his goodness. You you will never lose that. Those who are justified, declared righteous by God, are justified eternally. But what we tend to be overly dismissive about is the importance of holy living. But holy living is not a precursor or prerequisite for salvation. Holy living is the consequence of salvation, like unholy living is the consequence of unbelief. Sinful living is a consequence of sin and death. Holy living is a consequence of life and truth in Christ. The adversary is out to make God look bad. 
if he can, by slandering and attacking and mutilating the pursuit of genuine godliness. He can never, ever separate a sinner or a believer from the love of God. He can never separate those who in Christ from this eternal bliss in heaven. But on the way there, he will do everything in his power to destroy you or destroy your progress in Christ. So sanctification is under attack. And the way that we achieve victory in sanctification progressively, step by step, increment by increment. It may be small steps, but it's a step nonetheless. It may not be a fruit, but it's going to be a bud nonetheless. It is when we apply the character of Christ rigorously in the power of the Holy Spirit to our lives. The evil one is after your spiritual progress. So stagnant spirituality is his goal, as his destruction is his goal. There's a sense of urgency in verse 13, dear saints of Ephesians 6. Therefore, take it up. Take up the entire planopy of God, the entire weaponry of God. Leave none of it behind. So, like Romans 13, verse 14, when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a way that you begin to progressively make no provision for the flesh. It's something to consider when you look at Romans chapter 13. That section, beginning with verse 8, comes after the doctrine of the teaching of submission. Now, there's a specific sphere of submission, but that word submitting, submission is subjecting ourselves is a bane. It is a pain for everyone. Our youth, they have problems with submission because we have a problem submitting to God. They have a problem submitting to God. As we get older, we have a problem submitting. Even in local fellowship, submission is hard for the congregation at times. And so that's where you have division and attacks and, and slanderous remarks because it's a failure to submit oftentimes. Submission is a very difficult task. Whatever sphere of life you may be, it could be your place of employment. You will find something wrong with the boss to not submit. It's in our heart to find excuses not to submit. It's because our heart is hardened towards a submission day by day to Christ. You need the armor of God. Because your failure to submit to earthly leadership means that there's a colossal failure to submit to the divine authority. Our struggles are indicative of the very health of our relationship to God. We can say that they're symptomatic of our relationship to God. You're going to have those sinful symptoms when the root cause is a failure to align ourselves with the authority of Christ. Verse 13, Ephesians 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And then at the end of verse 18, having done all to stand firm, dear saints. Having done all. And when you read that text, if you haven't studied it, what comes to your mind? Okay, well, let's talk about what it does not mean. It does not mean after doing all you can do. 
that doesn't work in salvation or sanctification. Salvation is all of God, nothing of man. Sanctification is all of God working in man. It does not mean after doing all that you can do. It does not mean after you've exhausted your personal resources. You say, well, I did everything I could and I can't do this any longer. That was not spiritual. That's why you can't do it any longer. Whenever we reach the extremity of the end of ourselves, it means that we have exhausted our human options. This was not divine. It was empowered by God. The ability to bear up, to move forward, to stand firm, and to remain firm is a divine work of the Spirit of God. If life exhausts you, the children exhaust you, the husband exhausts you, your family exhausts you, your brothers exhaust you, your sister exhausts you, the traffic exhausts you, your job exhausts you, it's because the Spirit of God is set aside for your own power. That's not what this means here. It does not mean after you have used all your power and influence. It does not mean that either. What it means is this. And this is critical, dear saints. In your daily submission to Christ, your dependence on the Spirit of God and applying the Word of God, as you pursue godliness or Christ-likeness, that's the essence of having done all. It is Christ. It's Christ. It is the application of of the gospel of Christ and the words of Christ to your new life in Christ. That's having done all. You don't skip anything. You don't bypass anything. You are a thorough, you are disciplined in applying the truths of Scripture to your own heart and life. And I can't stress this anymore. The application of the word of God is not only in the imperatible section or the commands. The application of the word of God begins in the beginning. It may not be a direct command to do, but it is calling for a response to believe, to trust, to worship, to acknowledge, to confess your sins, to declare the truth. All scripture is not directly applicable to go and do likewise, but it is applicable in some way or form because you're learning about the knowledge of God, the character of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the riches of God, the judgment of God. That's what you're learning. That's having done all. You you are studious in the Word of God. So when we began preaching this September of 2019-ish, that if you were here, some of you were not. If you were here, then you engaged, you listened, and if you missed anything, you acknowledge your sin and you find ways to listen to the recording or other faithful preaching because you want to know. See, what, what we have to be careful with as saints is with this armor, there's no picking and choosing. You're not picking your favorite weapon. God says you need the whole thing. There is a Spiritual complacency that can affect us so much that we think we're sufficient without the means that God says you need. But if God says you need all of the scripture, and she said, well, I, you know, I don't need the first three chapters. I just need to know what to do. That's legalism. That's just pure legalism. If we start with indicatives, there's, there's no righteousness to rest on. 
There's no character of Christ to depend on, especially when we sin. We'll be hopeless because then we'll try to work our way out of it. You must start with the divine, glorious, new covenant. Christ has done a great work in decadence. He has done this for me and my salvation. Cultivating good deeds is is a necessary part of not eternal life, but a fruit of salvation. But it is not as far as priority first place. First place priority is the work of Christ for us. And then it's the work of Christ in us and through us to produce these godly affections. So the application of the doctrine is not, what, what can I do to be a better Christian? It's, how may I learn about Christ and be more like him? How can I magnify just, just the purity and the, the, the majesty of, of the person, the work of Christ, that God has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in Christ? It's, it begins there. We gloss over that sometimes. We, we don't meditate on it as we should. And so our armor just looks like a misfit piece of wear. We, we got the helmet on our feet, the shoes on our head. You have the word of God, but it's everywhere because it hasn't been established in doctrine. Let me just say this on that, on that point. You cannot be a doer of the word if you're not a hearer of the word. You cannot do what you do not know, but, but this doing, once more, it, it rests or is predicated on, it relies on your knowledge of what God has done in the person of Christ. If you don't have that, then that's why your duties are scattered. Your service is sketchy. Your love for the church is sometime-ish. Yes, even when the church asks you to serve and do certain things, you will actually say, I have to pray about serving when you know there's a need. That's not the armor. That's not the armor. It makes your response to spiritual things questionable. Because you have not rooted yourself in the doctrine. So therefore, your response to exhortations, to the application of the word of God in practical ways, is sometime-ish, or it's hit and miss. The armor is not full. The armor is, having done all, you applied the doctrines to your heart and the duty to your faith. There's no disconnect. It is all related to the gospel. The doctrines to your heart is a heart of flesh. The duty to your faith is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then you embrace the gospel, but then you engage in the instruction through obedience. Okay, what is, what is this text encouraging, admonishing me to do. But we know the first 14 verses, or the first verses 3 through 14, 12 verses, is really to praise God, is to worship God, is to give him thanks, is to acknowledge his goodness, to acknowledge his sovereignty, to acknowledge that he predestined us to salvation before the foundation of the world, is to acknowledge he predestined us to do good works before the foundation of the world, is to give him thanks, is to glorify him, is to worship him. But true worship is never absent of obedience. To worship God in spirit and in truth is love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. It is never absent of that. So just to say, well, let's just give God thanks for what he's done and then do nothing in response and obedience is not consistent with this text, with this letter. 
Dear saints, you meditate on the indicatives and you actively pursue the imperatives. So then, the end of verse 13 concludes that based on your obedience to Scripture, you are consistent in the application of God's Word in dependence on the Holy Spirit. That is having done all. It is spiritual. It is Christ rooted in the gospel, grounded in the truth from the Scripture. That's having done all. So this is a spiritual exercise. This is spiritual discipline. This is sanctification. So what does the preparation look like? I said it in a general way, but then we can look at the text of Scripture. You glory in chapter 1 of God's great work in salvation. And then now God begins to unveil this plan in verse 10 for the fullness of time of Ephesians 1 to not all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That, that is the grand theme and the grand summary of all things in the Lord Jesus Christ to unite all things in him. And that the beginning of that unity is seen in how God reconciles the Jews and the Gentiles and brings them into one fellowship, the fellowship with him through Christ. That is a part of having done all. You're looking at the text of Scripture, you go to chapter 2. You recognize the history of, of your sin and your death and your estrangement from God, but then you recognize the grace of God saved you through faith. It's not your own doing. Of Verse 8 of Ephesians 2, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. And then you recognize that we are his workmanship in verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is having done all. You're considering these truths and the implication on your thoughts, your worship, and soon on your obedience. You belong to Christ. You're his. You're God's own workmanship. And when God does anything, it is always good. So God is into producing good fruit in your life. You're meditating on that. And then you go to chapter 3. You just take a part of the chapter 3. There's, there's a, a restating of this great mystery that the Jews and the Gentiles are sharing, the inheritance of salvation, that God's gift in the new covenant to give a new heart to the Jews will also be given to the Gentiles. And then he says that to me, though I am the very least of all the saints in verse 8 of Ephesians 3, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You're thinking on those truths, beloved. That's, that's a part of having done all. You're, you're meditating. You're processing the implications, the impact, that is, that these truths should have on your life personally, but also on the church corporately in sanctification. And so when you get to chapter 4, you've considered those realities. And now comes the reality of making sure that your life fits according to the glorious blessings, these riches in Christ. In chapter 4, I therefore prison of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It is a glorious call. It is an honor to be called by God, but now comes the life, the life of putting off those sins, putting on the deeds of righteousness that reflects this worthiness. So then the worthy walk is to make sure that your conduct matches your convictions or your belief and behavior are in harmony with each other. And we stress this before, you no longer walk as an unbeliever, 
And so your thoughts are being conformed to that of Christ because that is not the way you've learned Christ. And then chapter 5, you're walking in love as Christ loved us. And so that goes once more to the gospel and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then verse 15, you're walking in God's wisdom, not as unwise, but as wise. But this wisdom comes from God. T- taking, work, walking circumspectly, as the King James Version, I believe, says, but it's to look carefully how you walk. Have a measured spiritual examination as you walk. Give careful consideration, not according to the wisdom of the world, but according to the wisdom that comes from God. And to walk this way is to walk in the fullness of God's salvation's blessings and also the filling of the Holy Spirit to submit in relationships that God places you in and believers submitting to the local church's biblical direction, submitting to those who exercise oversight over their lives. That as a church, if God is bringing everything in subjection to his son, the church should display what that looks like in our relationships because we are submitting to Christ. God is displaying that to the world. Dear saints, is that not something worth considering? Should we not give weight to where the scripture gives us weight? If, if God is bringing things into subjection under his son and the church is to display that, do you not see how damaging and incriminating this unity is? Do you not see how harmful divisiveness is? Do you not see instead of building up, we're tearing down when we use words that are negative, derogatory, hateful, mean? When we're speaking about each other and not praying for each other, do you not see that this is attacking not the person but our Savior, who God says he's the final authority over all things and creation is subjection to him and that the church does not display that? It is when you do not apply the doctrine and the duty to your heart that you and I will even use the word of God, spiritual things, to launch sinful and hostile grenades toward each other. But that's not the unity that God is working in. It's the very thing that the adversary is working in. He loves dissension. He loves attacks. He loves hateful words. He loves resentful speech. He loves all of the anti-godly virtues. And he wants them displayed in the church. And then he says, oh, well, look at these believers Look at Ephesians 1.10, that God is powerful. Where is this powerful God in Grace Community Church of Long Beach? Where is he in this church around the corner? Where is he? We're not talking about a unity of compromise. We're talking about a unity that's based on truth, right? Because true biblical unity is grounded in, in truth. It's grounded in the character of Christ. But dear saints, the adversary is working. And when our armor is not on, he'll justify those responses. He'll say, it's okay to do that. It's okay to act out this way because it was done to you in such and such a way. Once more, Thomas Brooks. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. If they be in prosperity, he will tempt them to deny God. If they be in adversity, he will tempt them to distrust God. If their knowledge be weak, he will tempt them to have low thoughts of God. 
If their conscience be tender, he will tempt them to scrupulosity or hesitation even over matters of liberty. If the conscience is large, he will entice them to carnal security. If bold-spirited, he will tempt them to presumption, or that is to assume. If timorous, that is fearful, to desperation. If flexible, to inconstancy or inconsistency. If stiff, to impenitency. Whatever sin the heart of man is prone to, that the devil will help forward or advance. If David be proud of his people, Satan will provoke him to number them, that he may be yet prouder. If Peter be slavishly fearful, Satan will put him upon rebuking and denying Christ to save his own skin. If Ahab's prophets be given to flatter, the devil will straightway or immediately become a lying spirit in the mouths of 400 of them, and they shall flatter Ahab to his ruin. If Judas be a traitor, Satan will quickly enter into his heart and make him sell his master for money, which some heathens would never have done. End quote. If you are not putting on the armor, the master deceiver will prey on your weaknesses until you're mortified, and he will prey on your weaknesses to your destruction. If you are a prayerless saint and you don't pray, he will keep you busy with life. He'll keep you busy with the children, busy with your homework, busy with your job, busy with social affairs. And if you do not read the scripture and study it, and if you say, well, Sunday is enough, and you don't even remember the sermon, well, then he'll say, wait, maybe you're a better listener than a reader. If you love arguing over the final points of doctrine and it never pierces your own soul, he'll erase conversations that have nothing to do with spiritual growth, just arguments. If you love what you get out of marriage rather than what you can give to it, he will see to it that Christ is not glorified by enlarging your sensually sinful desires. He will use those temptations, even spiritual things, carnal things, to tempt you. He will prey on your weakness. He is a wicked, wily predator. You need the whole armor. Haven't done all, all of it, all of Scripture all of God's power, all of God's truth to subdue your sinful weaknesses so that you may be able to stand in the time of great temptation. Dear saints, we must consider this armor. This armor is spiritual. It is the embodiment of God's character. To wear it is to put on Christ through the means of spiritual growth. You're imitating God when you put the armor on. The armor is Christ's likeness. It is imitating your Father. The armor is also supernatural, and it is pure. That means it is not only a defense against the devil, it's a defense against your own sin. It's pure. It will purify you because the armor is Christ's likeness. It is powerful. But the power, personally and corporately, is seen in a transformed life. It is powerful whether or not it works for us. 
because it is God's power. But the visible nature of this power is seen in a transformed life. How is it possible to give those of us who have these struggles with sin a godly desire to put them off and to put on Christ? It's the power of God. It's the power of the risen Christ. And here's another warning. This is not about special chance, words, or rebuking, binding. It's, that's actually an act of pagan practices, and it is rooted in satanic thought. Prior to salvation, the Ephesian believers engaged in special chants, special magical chants. Read in Acts, they threw their magic books in the fire, so they were used to chants and incantations. They were used to relics. They were used to repeating certain catchphrases for the spirits to work for them. Do you actually think God is going to adopt that blasphemous, God-hating philosophy? And all of a sudden, it's in the church? No. The armor is holiness. The armor is sanctification. The armor is pursuing Christ's likeness, the strength to put off the sin comes from the rule and the reign of Christ in your life progressively. Not some phrase, and I know we like lazy phrases. If I said this, that's going to happen. Like our spirituality is like the lottery. We just want to go in, scratch off a few numbers, and win. We don't want to work. We don't want to labor. We don't want to put the time in, the prayer, the pursuing of Christ. We just want some magical formula from God. It's called blasphemy. And Satan has a bunch of formulas for you. He's a master deceiver. He's deceived the church, tricked the church into pursuing this and that holy living. Some of your best spiritual chanters are living defiled, sinful lives. It doesn't help them put anything off. Dear saints, this power enables you to put off Every sin that prevents the armor from working effectively in your life. So you prepare for God's armor by relying on the power of the risen Christ. Then putting off the sins and putting on the virtues as a new creation in Christ. And you need the armor because the devil is a master deceiver. The days are evil. You and I are no match for our sins and the world or the devil. So this is our charge. Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. And notice how this hymn fleshes out this text, and you realize that this is, this is spiritual, this is sanctification. Strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal Son, strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, who in the strength of Jesus' trust is more than a conqueror. This is spiritual. Stand then in his great might with all his strength endued and take to arm for the fight the panoply or the whole armor of God. From strength to strength go on. Wrestle and fight and pray. Tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. And dear saints, this is sanctification. Listen to the third stand of this hymn. Leave no unguarded place. What do you think that is? That's, that's holy living. Don't just gloss over your sins. Don't just look over it. Don't just take it lightly. Tread upon every sin. Trample it with the gospel, with the cross of Christ. Hate the very sins that drove your Savior to the cross. Resent them. Hate them. Load them and love Christ. Leave no unguarded place in your heart. Now listen, dear saints. 
Why are you still treasuring these sins? Why? Why the sin of bitterness? Why the sin of hostility? Why are you still holding on to the sins of unforgiveness? Why are you guarding those sins as opposed to exposing them? Why the hostility? Why the lack of warmth and friendship? Why the indifference? Why the hatred? Why the animosity? Why? This stanza says, leave no unguarded place. The world would say, well, I have to do this to protect my feelings. That's, once again, that's the world, and Satan will embellish these things. He said, well, I just, I made this decision because I want to be happy. The devil wants you to be miserably happy on your way to eternal destruction in hell. Or miserably dissatisfied with Christ as a Christian. Leave no unguarded place. What, what deceptions, what, what lies are entering your thoughts and your mind from the world? Remember, there's, there's a, a threefold battle. Three unholy forces. The devil, your sins in the world. What in the world is the world doing affecting you? You say, well, I, I watch these shows and they don't do anything for me. Oh, no, 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 no. It's doing something. It's doing something. And when people say, well, you're talking about shows, those are a matter of preferences. There's some shows that are not a matter of preference. They, God hates them because they're attacked on virtues. You have people who are married six times, committing moral sins 50 times in a month, and, and you're watching their shows. Maybe not you, but believers. God abhors this because it's an attack on the fundamental establishment of creation and marriage. It is a fundamental attack on purity and holiness. And we find our young kids are having struggles with purity. How is it possible for them to put the sins off without Christ, much less with the television, inundating them in the homes of fellow believers? This, you have left your fortress unguarded. Leave. No unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue from God, every grace from God, and fortify the whole. That's what it's saying. Having done all, fortify the whole. Sanctification. This song is still about holiness. That having done all, or having all things done, and all your conflicts past, you may overcome through Christ alone and stand complete at last. This is glorious. This, this is the final day of, of perfect sanctification where you will be perfectly righteous before God. Until then, you're fighting for that perfection on this earth while never attaining it now. It's a worthy goal for the future glory of absolute perfection. Soldiers of Christ arise. Stop using earthly weapons. There are no use for this battle. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Arm yourself with his goodness. Study his character. Ask the Holy Spirit to pour the character, the nature of Christ into your soul deeply to deal with those sins that you love, that you crave, that you desire, but they alienate you from the glory of the Savior. Kill them. Leave no 
unguarded place. None. Hate the sins, hate the devil, love God, love Christ, know the scriptures, study the word of God, and there's no substitute for these things. I've mentioned this before, that we have access to a plethora of books and, and resources that the Reformers and others fought for and, and some died for. And they've accomplished so much more than we have because the source for them was not the extra books. It was the gospel it was so transforming, so life-changing, to which I must ask this question. Which Christ do you believe in? Because the Christ you're believing is the Christ you're going to put on. If this Christ is the American Christ, he's kinky, he's weak, he's volatile, he lets you do what you want, live how you want, say what you want, be what you want, as long as you come here on the Lord's Day. That's, that's the American Christ. The Christ of the Scripture is the conquering Christ. He rules. He reigns. He's powerful. He's merciful, but he rules. He's loving. He's gracious, but he rules. And by his grace, when you submit to the Spirit's power and engage in the Word of God, he will make sure that there are no unguarded places in your heart. So then which Christ is it? Is it the divisive, attacking, slanderous, gossiping, bitter, unforgiving version of Christianity? Or the one that says, I hate these sins because they drove the very nails, my Savior's hands, his feet, and he was pierced for my transgressions. When I see the cross, I see those same offensive sins that I committed attempted to commit. Oh, God, please fortify my mind, my heart, so that I don't give in to the sins that I said my Savior died for. Leave no unguarded place. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, help us to embrace the weight of your truth but the glory of this truth. That we have a conquering Savior, not a defeated Savior, who's ruling his church. It's not a partnership. It's full authority. He's the head of the church. He rules the church. I pray for your grace and your goodness and also your mercy as we engage in this truth that we have from time to time pursued a deficient armor because we're embracing a deficient gospel. But I praise you for your mercy and your kindness to forgive us and establish us in that truth that the claims that our Father makes in our lives that I've saved you and called you my own, I've adopted you, but I've given you the strength not only to believe, 
but to do. And to wear this glorious and invincible armor presently in this earth so that we can gain from day to day victory to victory until that day of complete and eternal victory. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.